Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Kinjal Shaw. She is an investor at Blockchain Capital and at the Komarebi Fund, and I'm super excited to talk to her about both of those. Blockchain Capital is a crypto venture fund, and Komarebi is the very first investment DAO focused on funding female and non-binary crypto founders. Welcome, Kinjal. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into blockchain capital and Comorabia, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background and how you got into crypto in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I come from a traditional financial services background. So back in 2017, I was working at Fidelity. Um, there's now a pretty big Fidelity mafia, um, as they like to call it, that has emerged in the blockchain space. But um, I was doing more traditional consulting there, and I got put on a project specifically looking at blockchain use cases. And so that's when I really fell down the rabbit hole. You know, I really felt like this was going to be the future of financial services, but also a much broader applicability across different industries. And so I decided to, to jump into it full time. And that's when I moved out to San Francisco um, and joined Blockchain Capital. Gotcha. So when you first got exposed to crypto, how did you start learning about it back in the day? Because still today, I mean, today there's a lot more resources, but back in 2017, 2018, there were much fewer resources. Yeah, absolutely. Much fewer resources. And yet, I think the feeling of, of being overwhelmed doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really go away. So it was definitely a little overwhelming in the beginning. Um, I was super fortunate in that I learned a lot from the local scene in Boston. Um, specifically, I worked really closely with Matt Walsh and Nick Carter, who are at Castle Island Ventures. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of learning from them, of course, and read a lot of white papers, you know, started really like with the foundations of the Bitcoin white paper and some of the sort of podcasts that were popular back then. Laura Shin's podcast was kind of the OG at the time. And so definitely listened to her a lot. Um, yeah, and just kind of dove in on a lot of the writing that was done at the time. Very cool. Do you have any sort of like go to sources today that you can point people to like people who are just getting into the space today? Yeah, so I think getting into the space today, I think there's there's so many different entry points. So my go to resources for folks are, are I usually break it into three things. So the first is, I recommend getting to know the technology and like understanding the, the tech. So even if you're don't consider yourself to be technical, there's a great course at um, Princeton, that's MOOC that I took about um, cryptocurrencies and sort of how they work that I really recommend. And then I also really just recommend people going back to the original sources of white papers, the Ethereum white paper, Bitcoin white paper, and trying to understand kind of from the foundations. And then um, just kind of getting in and using products. So whether that's DeFi or NFTs, I think you kind of need to have a little bit of skin in the game, joining a few DAOs, whatever it may be maybe set aside a little bit of an education fund for yourself, whether that's $100 or whatever it might look like and try out a lot of products and, and kind of go from there. Totally agree with that. I think 
doing is the fastest way of learning once you get your skin in the game and get some skin in the game and actually try out the products or join the ecosystem. I think that's like when you'll be doing the fastest learning. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about blockchain capital. So you joined back in 20, what was it? No, 2017, 2018 was blockchain capital. Obviously, blockchain capital is a crypto venture fund. Uh, Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about like specifically what projects you guys invest in and how you guys work with your portfolio projects? Yeah, absolutely. So, so blockchain capital has been around now for eight or nine years. One of the really OG venture funds to kind of be dedicated to the sector. And we really consider ourselves to be generalists in the space. Um, so I would say the first few funds were there was a heavy focus on infrastructure, also just more traditional financial services and kind of getting those pieces into place. So some of our earlier investments include companies like Coinbase, Kraken, Abra, BitGo, some of the sort of OG pioneers. And then um, in more recent funds, you know, particularly since I've joined, a big you know, big part of our um, thesis has been investing in DeFi, investing in um, the consumer landscape, which is really where I focus. And then again, also on the infrastructure side. So a few investments that we've recently made include projects like Upshot, which does NFT appraisals, OpenSea, which is, of course, the NFT, you know, leading exchange. And then on the DeFi side, we were very early involved with projects like Nexus Mutual and Aave. Um, So there's really, you know, a broad focus. And then in terms of how we work with our portfolio projects, I tend to split it up into two buckets. The first is crypto native, and then the second is more traditional VC. So on the crypto native side, it's really about getting involved um, at the governance level. I tend to think that VCs are more, you know, evolving into this role of like a super community user and really trying to, you know, trying to become a critical member of the community. And so whether that's putting together governance proposals or, working with within a particular work stream. I think that's been a big focus for our team. And then I would say on the more traditional side, it's it's really about business development, helping out with recruiting to the extent that we can. We have now like 120 portfolio companies. So a lot of times there are great um, connections and relationships to be made across the portfolio, things like that. That's awesome. Okay, so I want to break that down a little bit more. I'm curious too to know when and how that shift happened and sort of like where you see blockchain capital investing in in the future as well. So walk me through like you start with, you know, more like traditional financial products. And then as the crypto ecosystem grows, you sort of expand into that. Like where in the process do you does blockchain capital decide to step in and say like, okay, we're going to pivot towards DeFi now? Like did that happen before DeFi summer, after DeFi summer, um, just trying to understand like how, you know, like when you're thinking through like balancing the risk of getting into a sector too early versus, you know, you don't want to be also like too late to the party either. Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of what's happened in the past, you know, five, six years um, is about sequencing to a point where, you know, you kind of need certain infrastructure to be in place in order for subsectors to emerge. So, with the example with DeFi, um, we actually made our first investment, I would say, in, in like what's considered traditionally DeFi in 2018 in UMA. Um, so it was actually a fair, you know, a fair bit earlier than DeFi summer. And I think we really saw this vision of, okay, how can we sort of create these financial services on top of Ethereum in a manner that um, is more accessible and open and potentially scales in a, in a very different way. And so I think a lot of this is like the thesis kind of builds on top of each other where you, um, you know, you have like the infrastructure phase, 
And then comes like the app frenzy. And then you go back to like infrastructure to be able to service all the apps that were just created. And then we go back to like the app phase. And I think like that's been happening in, in the blockchain space really broadly. Um, and so it's really just about identifying those inflections and and then doubling down on them. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then you said that your focus within blockchain capital is more on the consumer landscape. What all does that include in the crypto ecosystem? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've been starting to call it the consumer landscape as a or consumer, you know, category as a broader bucket. But um, I, I tend to think of that as anything that's focused on interfacing with the retail user. So that might be NFTs. It might be some of the open social networks that we're starting to see being built out, DAOs, um, DAO-related infrastructure and tooling, even to a certain extent, DeFi as well. I think DeFi is starting to get parlayed into a couple of buckets of institutional users versus more like um, consumer-facing applications. So anything that I think interfaces with a, uh, with an everyday user. Yeah, and I think as we move forward too, like we'll see more of that being meshed together. Whereas now you're, you know, you're you're saying how like DeFi is getting intertwined with NFTs and maybe DAOs as well. And I think in the future, once we realize, oh, all of these things can be meshed together and we can create even bigger and cooler things when we don't separate out NFTs from DAOs, from DeFi, from all the things and combine it all together. Um, so I think in the future, it probably will all be meshed together even more than we're seeing it now. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think like this whole idea of building blocks and composability is just at its very, very early days. And so we're going to start to see so much more overlap moving forward. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious too to know when deciding which projects to invest in, what is that thought process like at Blockchain Capital? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of early stage investing comes down to a couple of key categories. So I think first, like, of course, wanting to get to know the team and, and better understand who are the founders behind the particular project. Um, I think having an you know, idea of the market and particularly in crypto, I think it's about timing as well. Like there are a lot of projects that are super interesting today that I think a couple of years ago might have been a little bit early. So um, thinking through like the market opportunity in the in the near term, but also over like an extended period of time. And then of course, like the tech and, and whether or not we feel like um, the technology is either differentiated or um, able to sort of retain users in a particularly novel way. I think it's really about the combination of those three things. So founder, market, and tech, to me, kind of stand out as like the, the trifecta. Um, and then I think with crypto, a lot of investing kind of builds on, on, on top of one another. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're investing in the Ethereum ecosystem, you, a couple of assumptions that, you know, somebody might um, make are your long-term bullish on Ethereum, which, you know, you kind of have to like get comfortable with the base layer chain and some of the technology. And then you're, when you're investing on top of it, it's like, okay, within this ecosystem, like, why do we think this particular project is going to, um, stand out or succeed? So I think there's a little bit of like layering as well that comes into play. Yeah. And so when you look at the portfolio projects you're investing in now, what are some maybe like underdogs that people don't know about? Okay, so like not OpenSea, not Aave, obviously everybody knows about those. What are some like underdog companies that people may not know about that you're like, people are sleeping on this, like you've got to pay attention? Yeah. So um, one category that I'm super excited about is gaming. And I know it's become much more popular in, you know, I think the past couple of months, but 
Um, I think gaming has gotten some some life uh, more recently. And one of our portfolio companies, Stardust, is doing something really exciting there where they're basically building out infrastructure for developers to launch in-game NFTs. Think about it if you're like an indie game developer and you're you're looking at all of the, the, the blockchain and crypto craze and you're thinking about, okay, how can I potentially integrate this into, into what I'm building? Stardust is kind of like the go-to platform there. And you know, I think their solution is going to be one that um, a lot of uh, gaming enterprises or gaming studios are going to start looking at and say, we need this um, because, you know, we're, we're trying to think through the tech and, and understand what we want to do there. So Stardust is one that I'm, I'm, I'm particularly really excited about. And then one more that I would call out um, is a is a company called uh, Block Native, which, you know, I think Block Native is, is somewhat well known, but you know, what I, what I love about what Block Native is doing, so they started out as kind of like a mempool explorer, um, basically building out API-based infrastructure and tooling for better understanding transactions. And it's such a rich area that so few understand. Um, and it's becoming super integral for any corporation or enterprise that's thinking about adding um, you know, adding crypto asset, you know, buy and sell or any sort of any sort of crypto functionality, it's really important to have a better understanding on your risk, and um, some of the transactions and what's kind of happening in the mempool. And so whether it's whether it's for more like traditional enterprises or for projects that are building within um, crypto, DeFi, whatever it may be, Block Native, I think is just providing like a, a sort of need to have solution. Um, in an area that I think can be a little bit scary, but just really important to understand. Yeah, I want to break down um, something in both of those that you brought up. I think infrastructure has come up many times in this conversation. I think it's something that uh, is always uh, sort of at like the forefront of what people are, what builders are thinking about, especially when building in such a new space. When you think about infrastructure, what do you see as being the biggest needs in the space right now? Like what should builders be building out, like people who are focused on infrastructure um, right now so that we can move the space forward and like continue to grow? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and there's honestly a lot of white space. So I, I guess I would I would break it into three buckets right now. I would think about the end user and then the type of infrastructure that they might need. So for example, if I were thinking about a community um, of users and, and sort of more the retail um, person, I would say that DAO related infrastructure and tooling is super important right now. And it's becoming more and more common to, um, you, you hear a lot about like people piecemealing together their DAO and it, it's somewhat frustrating. And so I think there's some great projects in the tooling space as it relates to DAOs that are going to scale over time. Um, for example, Tally is one that we recently invested in that I'm super excited about that's kind of building this hub for governance-based um, decisions and, and kind of a dashboard there. And then over time, we'll hopefully expand from, from there. And then the second category, I would say, is developers. So thinking through, you know, um, how do we bring Web 2 developers over to Web 3? Like talent is one of the biggest challenges in the space right now. And so I think there are some great projects that are are thinking about that whether it's like, you know, a low code solution or um, just ways to kind of integrate API solutions so developers can get started really quickly from day one. And then the last bucket that I would say is thinking about corporations and enterprises. Now we're not only seeing like traditional financial services get involved, but we're seeing a lot of attention from entertainment and e-commerce and um, some of the more social brands in the space. And so thinking about like, they are coming up to speed on the past 
six, seven years of development. And so how can we potentially make it easier for them? I have some questions there as well. Um, when you were talking about developers like bridging from Web 2 to Web 3, I just thought about like a bubble for Web 3, like the low code company bubble. Is that like something that is buildable, like across bridging from Web 2 to Web 3? I mean, I don't know. I'm not technical, so I don't even know if, like what's possible and what's not. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not an engineer either. Um, I, I think like eventually no code or low code tools will be more feasible. I think right now it might be better to focus on, you know, how do we get more solidity engineers or how do we get like more translatable um, sort of either like curriculum or boot camps or um, just ways to port over senior engineers on on the web two side into the crypto world. And then from there, potentially go down like a, a low code or no code um, route. I think it's definitely feasible. I just I think it's a little bit of a question of like timing. But I think from a technical perspective, I, I have less to. Yeah, I can't really back that up per se. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I'm also curious about your take on DAOs because I've seen you write a lot about it. And I, I know that's like sort of at the forefront of your work. When you think about DAOs, obviously, there's you know, a, a lot of reasons why DAOs are attractive to people, but there's also a lot missing in the DAO space right now. I guess like maybe start with like a, your high level take on DAOs. Like, what do you think? Like, are you bullish on DAOs? Do you think people, it, it's good that people are jumping into DAOs or do you think like people are jumping too hard and too fast into DAOs and they should maybe slow down? <laughs> yeah, I, so I'm, I'm definitely a, a long-term believer in DAOs and I think that there's so much to come there, but I guess I'll start high level as to like why I'm interested and then talk a little bit more about where we are in the cycle. So, um, you know, DAOs to me represent a new framework and a new way to coordinate um, groups of users, a way to coordinate work, labor, whatever it may be in a manner that I think will fundamentally lead to better outcomes when it comes to like wealth distribution and capital. Um, and so what I mean by that is DAOs allow users to turn into owners and they do that via some sort of either shared ownership through a token um, or some other mechanism. And so in general, I would say I'm really excited about what the potential of a DAOs of a DAO will look like. I think scaling DAOs has um, a few different flavors. On one hand, scaling might mean the number of users that are participating in a DAO. And then on the other hand, it might be just the amount of capital or the potential, I don't want to say power, but the potential sort of influence that a DAO might have in a particular ecosystem. Um, and so I think we're starting to see DAO, DAO scale when it comes to capital and influence. But I think when it comes to the number of users, that's when we run into challenges related to uh, actually operating a DAO and, and kind of um, the day to day. So um, I think longer term, I am super excited right now. I would say that um, I think DAOs are great. And I'm, I'm loving that people are joining DAOs, but I think we're going to come across some challenges as it relates to like, how many DAOs can you join feasibly? Um, what does it mean to join a DAO? Like how much of it is speculation versus participation? Um, and just making sure that those boundaries are really clear because I, I, I really do think that successful DAOs um, have users that come from day one because they have they really believe in the mission versus them sort of speculating on like the token price. Um, and then, of course, like this question around scaling users is really around like, okay, how do we coordinate everybody? Like sometimes just decentralized decision making can be slow. Governance still has a kind of a long ways to go. So um, plenty of challenges to be solved. 
but I am I'm pretty excited about where the space is headed. Yeah. Do you see in the long run DAOs replacing any types of traditional organizations? Like, for instance, I mean, one thing that comes top of mind is, and I'm sure you have an opinion on this, is um, DAOs potentially replacing traditional VC firms because we're seeing all of these, you know, grant DAOs and that they pretty much serve the same purpose, except instead of being like a generalist VC, they actually are they're made up of people who are deep in the weeds in the space and like really understand the space. So what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I love that question. I think, I think it comes down to like a broader trend of in 10 or 15 years, do we think everyone is going to um, have a primary job, like a primary day-to-day career, or is everyone really going to be participating in a portfolio of projects. And so what I mean by that, and you see this very commonly in in crypto, is that oftentimes um, somebody might be splitting their time across a few different projects. It's kind of the nature of like open source contributions in general. And I think if we see, if we play that trend out, then I could imagine a world where um, you might be investing through a DAO and then you might be building via another DAO. And so in those instances, I really do think that... Um, DAOs have the potential to disrupt venture capital and then maybe more broadly sort of disrupt like what it means to angel invest. You know, I think angel investing can be has become very um, popular. And I think that DAOs might kind of serve as like a middle ground between angel investing and like a fully fledged venture fund where you still get to invest alongside a group of people and kind of have this like shared portfolio but you're not um, necessarily responsible for finding all the deals yourself and diligencing all the deals yourself. So in some ways, I think there's a little bit of a middle ground there. Um, But more broadly, I definitely think that DAOs might end up being the preferred structure for a venture fund. Um, It really, I think, just comes down to like how involved you want DAO members to be. So what I mean by that is in a traditional venture fund, um, LPs are basically saying, hey, like, general partners, please take my capital and go invest it into the sector that you are an expert in and that I don't particularly have the time to allocate capital to. Um, That's really what the model is built around. Whereas in an investment DAO, we're saying, hey, like we're all experts and we want to invest together and kind of put the power of this DAO forward um, in order to invest into a particular category. And so it's much more of an active participant model versus what the limited partner to general partner relationship is historically. And so whether that is going to change, I'm not 100% sure. I think there will always be a world where limited partners might not want to be actively playing a role in their investments. Um, But I do think the DAO structure lends itself really well. Yeah. And that's an interesting point you made about, you know, like we, it's totally foreseeable that in 10 to 15 years, people will just, you know, be contributors to different DAOs instead of having like a full time nine to five job like we traditionally have. And that makes me wonder, too, like, how is that going to shift the education model? Because like a big sell of going to college nowadays is so you can get a job, even though we know this is like not true anymore. Um, But that's, you know, a big reason that people still go to college. And in the future, if it's like you can just you know, you like you don't need the credentials, like you don't have to send in your resume to join a DAO, you don't have to like prove that you went to Harvard or something to join a DAO. How do you think that's going to change the educational model? I know this is going off a tangent a little bit. No, no, I I love it. Um, So I think 
uh, you know, a big part of what education, like higher education to me provides is um, a lot of socialization that you don't necessarily get to do in your younger years. Socialization in the, se- in the sense of like, you're meeting people from all walks of life around the world. Um, and you're kind of living and working with them and, and, you know, in some ways growing up with them. And so I think that element um, is really what I'm excited about, you know, potentially DAOs replacing. So a less of a comment on like the education aspect of it. But what I do think is DAOs kind of reintroduce this element of like um, extracurriculars as an adult (laughs) is kind of how I think about it, right? Like some DAOs are for work, but some DAOs are also just for social, for fun. Like um, FWB is like a great example of a place where people just kind of go to like hang out, talk about variety of things and make friends. Um, And I think as adults right now, there are very few places where you can kind of have that type of like online engagement. And so I think as social DAOs scale, I could imagine them potentially either replacing or being like a really good substitute for for what that like education um, aspect feels like. Less so on like the curriculum. Um, I'm, I'm like, you know, not sure how that's going to evolve, but definitely I think like the social angle could be a big role in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. And then I could see MOOC stepping up from the curriculum angle and filling in the gaps there. Yeah, there is actually um, a learning club DAO that was just crowdfunded yesterday that I um, participated in. I don't know if folks saw that on Twitter, but um, it's they're putting together this really cool curriculum of like how, you know, crypto and Web3. Um, and you just, don't, you know, put in, I think, 0.1 ETH and you get access to like all these live discussions, which I think is a really cool experiment of um, what a learning club might look like. Nice. I did not see that, but I'll have to go check it out. Uh, cool. So I want to go into Comorabi Fund. That is uh, the first um, crypto, first investment DAO focused on funding female and non-binary crypto founders. So tell me about how this got off the ground. I know you were involved in it along with She256 and Blockchain Girls, um, who like shout out to their that one guide they have that is like the ultimate like newbie crypto guide. Uh, but how did you like, how did you guys start this? Where did the idea come from? And then how did you start building it up? I think she 256 and, and women in blockchain are just doing amazing work when it comes to education and awareness and bringing groups, bringing um, diverse groups together. So I think as a starting point, both of those organizations are really aligned with this mission. Um, and then I kind of started earlier this year hosting open office hours. So every month I um, chat with anywhere from five to 10 women who are thinking about starting companies or um, just wanting to get involved with with Web3. And a big, big part of why I did that is because um, as an investor for the past three years, I have not met as many women as I would like. And I know that they're out there. I know women are out there and they want to be kind of getting involved in this space. And so I said, okay, why don't I try to make like a, um, an, a concerted effort to, to make this more of a reality? And it's been super fun and illuminating. And so once that kind of got kicked off, I actually connected with Ian at Syndicate, who t- was telling me about Syndicate and what they were launching. And we were like, this might be a really great way to, to think about investing in female and non-binary binary founders and actually um, being able to kind of push that cause and sort of mission forward. And so we linked up with Shade 256 and um, with, uh, women in blockchain. And yeah, I think we just really wanted to be able to 
not just talk about this and educate and bring awareness, but actually start writing checks, which I think is so important, right? At the end of the day, we want to be, um, yeah, we want to be writing checks for, for, um, some of these founders. So that's kind of how things got off the ground. And since then we've, we have now about 35 members who've joined the DAO and are really excited about, um, this, this mission. That's awesome. Um, talk about how it's evolved over time. How did people join? Or is it still open for like other women listening who want to join? And then what are some projects that you've invested in so far? The way that it kind of evolved was we we started out with like a pilot. And so we said, okay, here's going to be sort of Komorebi one. Um, and so we went out to just friends and allies and folks who we thought would be a good fit um, and, and kind of got in touch with them. And then moving forward, you know, we'll try to continue, I think, to, to, to kind of bring in more folks as we finish deploying out of Comoray B1, you know, then we'll launch two and three. Um, and so it's not open right now, but we we're taking, we're definitely taking open interest and kind of making note of that. And I think one of the big questions for us over time is, is how do we scale this DAO, right? Right now we have 35 members and everybody's kind of voting on investment decisions. And so we're thinking about like, what does this look like um, at scale over time? And kind of working through some of the operational kinks in, in real time. Um, and then in terms of some of the investments that we've made, our first public investment is um, Apricot, which is a protocol, a lending protocol built on the Solana ecosystem. Um, the founder, Cecilia, has um, just an amazing background, more traditional finance, investment banking, and she's just super driven and incredibly um, motivated to kind of go after this opportunity and has a lot of a lot of great uh, experience, particularly in this sector. So we're really excited about what Apricot is doing. And then we're, we have two other um, investments that are either in progress or have recently closed that we're not able to share yet. Um, but yeah, really excited about building out this portfolio. And then I think longer term, you know, we'd love for this to be a bigger community for women. So, um, and non-binary founders to kind of come together. So regardless of whether or not we, are able to finance and fund a particular project, we would love for it to be um, a l- more of like a safe space and community for for founders to kind of reach out to one another and um, and just meet each other and talk to each other. Yeah, 100%. I'm curious you to know like how decision making works within Comorabi as a DAO, because I know every DAO kind of functions a little differently. And it seems like it's more so like, a, sometimes it, it can be more so like the the votes in the decision making happens on discord or on telegram and then after that's done then we pour it over to gnosis and actually you know push it through is that how it works at Comorabi? and then is it usually like a pretty smooth process or has there been a lot of back and forth with you know decision making on whether to invest in a in a project or not yeah so it's definitely something that we're we're talking about a lot right now decision making is happening um, off chain in a, in like a, a telegram chat, and then we'll kind of bring it over to Gnosis safe after we've done like the social light, um, voting. And a lot of the, um, sort of decision-making right now happens in a few different layers. So we have what we call like core team members who, um, are a little bit more focused on going a little, going deeper on particular investment opportunities. And then we surface and kind of synthesize the opportunity and put forward a proposal to the broader DAO. And then the DAO has an opportunity to, to discuss that investment, um, kind of go ask more questions, go back and forth, and then and then vote. The way that we've, we've tried to run this process is that it's not 
super cumbersome on all 35 members. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're um, able to have everybody come up to speed really quickly on an, on an opportunity and then vote accordingly. So um, that's the current process that we're running. I think it'll definitely evolve over time. You know, I think there's a bunch of models to test out whether it comes down to, you know, having different members of the DAO cover different investment areas or having, um, having more of like a real time dashboard where we can kind of post like our active pipeline. There's a whole bunch of things. So I think more to more to come there. But right now we're really thinking about how do we make sure that every decision um, is really a group process and everybody is able to kind of actively participate. Yeah, for sure. And then um, last question about this is obviously there aren't enough crypto like female founders in the crypto space yet or even just females working in the crypto space. Why do you think this is and what can we do as like females, especially or just the, you know, everybody else in the space? What, what can everybody do to help? make this a more welcoming space for women and encourage more women to join? It's a great question that I wish I <laughs> had like the the answer for. I guess what I would say is um, I, and I have experienced this myself, which is that all the women in the space are so welcoming and so wonderful to engage with and to meet with. And I feel like I've just made amazing friends. Um, and so I think like just the act of having some of these one-on-one -on -one conversations and like um, onboarding your friends or onboarding people that you meet can be so impactful. Um, and just like see, just meeting somebody that, you know, is saying like, hey, like you can do this and here's how to get started. And I can be like a friend or a helpful ear if you need it. If everybody did that for, for one woman, like we would be, the space would be so much bigger. And like we would have so many more um, female founders or female contributors. So I think it really comes down to the fact that like every small effort adds up. And so whether it's like thinking through like education awareness, talking about it more, highlighting um, like female founders, you know, I think this is a bigger problem in tech, but um, I, I think it's really just like calling attention and saying like, hey, we're here, like arms wide open, come and, and join us, I think goes a long way. So I would say that that's really where I've focused my efforts. And then I think like um, this is, maybe this is going to sound a little bit silly, but like wealth begets wealth, right? Like if more women are wealthy, we are going to have more, um, women come into the space and, and kind of give back to that group of people. And so like, I, I want everyone in the space to, um, kind of benefit off of this, like overall growth, um, men and women both. But I, I really do think that like, if we have more women, um, at the top, then they're going to turn around and, and try to bring others up with them. And so I think it's really just about like continuing that cycle. Yeah, I don't think that's silly at all. I think that's so true. I think if, you know, I, I think if you were able to give a newbie, you know, just like 0.5 ETH and say like, hey, go like learn stuff, go do stuff with this. I think that would be such a helpful jumping off point for somebody because, you know, I, I know like people are, it's hard, like, I think it requires a certain amount of wealth to like become crypto native in the way that it stands today until, you know, L2s are more developed and uh, more solutions are found, you know, to solve for this problem. But I think like a lot of people in this space have this whole thesis about how crypto is going to like, um, you know, just really level the playing field for everybody and make financial resource services accessible to everybody. But right now what we're still seeing is more so like, 
these like rich finance bros getting richer off of DeFi. And so it's not super inspiring at the moment. And so I totally agree with you, like more women, if more women come into the space and become wealthy in the space and can give back to women in the space and help onboard them into the space, I think that would be uh, in- hugely helpful. Okay, so I want to jump into some of our Twitter questions. We just have some questions from uh, some followers. The first one is from Matt Lockyer from Near. He says, is mainstream consumer crypto adoption, uh, i.e. NFTs, DAOs, gaming, going to come from existing incumbents and celebrities or startups and community and why? Yeah, um, I love that question. So I guess here's what I would say. Um, I think we have like two flavors and two examples that exist today that show that both can be successful. So here's what I would, how I'd break that down. Um, the first is NBA Top Shot, right? NBA Top Shot took um, IP that is very well known to the entire uh, country um, with the NBA and said, hey, we're going to like create this very um, friendly and like consumer friendly and familiar experience with NBA collectibles. Um, and that proved to be like a mainstream hit, right? And I think it onboarded a lot of people into the world of NFTs and just kind of understanding what their wallet looks like. And um, it took many folks who probably had never considered looking at crypto before and said, wait, this there's, this is like super cool. I want to like dive in deeper. Um, so I think that that was really a successful strategy. And then I think like this, on the other hand, you have um, a lot of organic growth in communities around things like um, Bored Apes or FWB or um, even loot and like all the excitement around loot. And personally, I'm really excited about like bottoms up branding and bottoms up NFTs where it feels like the NFTs are really a product of the community and that the community can drive that roadmap forward. I think that's going to be the next big producer of like the, the Disney's of crypto. I think like the Disney's of crypto are going to come from communities that basically build this roadmap like in front of our eyes. That being said, I don't think we should be dismissive of some of the larger brands that come into the space and that do it well um, and their ability to like potentially reach a brand new audience that isn't as crypto native and, and bring folks in. So I think it'll be a combination of both. But I definitely do feel a little like squeamish and cautious about all like the new brands that are saying like, hey, like, or not new brands, all the brands that are saying, hey, we want to launch new NFT projects and just kind of do like a drop for a particular artist or, you know, like, I don't know, like CNN dropping NFTs, like, okay, that's fine, but it doesn't really feel particularly authentic. So I think it really is about striking that balance. Yeah, for sure. I was going to ask about like what you thought about Visa buying a crypto punk or, you know, yeah, um, I, I think it's so cool. I mean, so I know Kai um, at Visa has been doing a lot of um, work when it comes to just educating and informing and, and leading crypto efforts at Visa. And so to me, the the punk moment, it felt like a signal to the world. It was like Visa is paying attention. We know what is happening in the crypto space. We We are a fan of it. We are thinking about ways that we can get more involved. Like, I think it was a... Um, And a lot of people talked about whether it was marketing or not. I think more than anything, it was more of like a signal of like, hey, like we are open for business for the NFT market. Um, And so from that regard, I'm really excited about it. I don't necessarily think like, you know, enterprises should go out and start like loading up on punks and bored apes. Like that's not to me the message that they were trying to send. Like they were really, I think, thinking more about like, what does this mean just from like an overall industry, like signaling um, perspective? 
Yeah. Okay, cool. I think we have time to squeeze in one more question from Twitter. This one's from Bulletbiter. This is a more philosophical question. What's something in crypto that you have to build up the willpower to do? I think like getting involved in some of these communities is it, it takes a lot to go from like lurker in the Discord channel to like active contributor to um per, like putting together governance proposals or governance um suggestions and and interfacing with core team members of a particular protocol. So I think like getting involved with a DAO takes quite a bit of time and and effort um to kind of get momentum and like I, I'm not sure if I would call it willpower per se, but it's it's definitely like in, a lot of intention is required. I, I would say to do it successfully. Um, I don't think like DAO participation is something that anyone can passively do. I think it, it requires like a lot of intention um, and kind of uh, willpower to build up over time. So I, I would just say that like when you're thinking about getting involved in a DAO or getting involved in crypto more broadly, um, really like make sure that this is a, a project that aligns with like your values, like what you want to see in a space, how you want to build something and then, and then kind of like put your, put your, um, best forward. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think like as much as people say like, oh, there's so much more freedom in DAOs and you get to be an owner and there are a lot of benefits. I think it in a lot of ways, it also is a lot harder to work in a DAO than it is to work in a traditional company where like you have a boss telling you exactly what to do. You know, in a DAO, you don't have really anybody telling you what to do. It's all up to you to set the intentions and take the initiative to do whatever you think needs to be done. So uh, with exactly. Great power comes great responsibility. Is that what they say or whatever they say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kendra. I know you have to run. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also where uh, if somebody is starting to build a new Web3 project from the ground up and they want to seek out funding from Blockchain Capital or Comorabi, um, where they can get in touch with both of those organizations. Yeah. So um, I'd say Twitter is the best place to find me. I'm at underscore Kindle B. Shaw. My DMs are open. Um, feel free to send me a message there. Um, blockchaincapital.com. We have information about our sort of funding process and you can reach out to me related to that as well. And then Komarebi, um, we are at uh, Komarebi Fund on Twitter and um, you can find more information about how to apply there as well. Perfect. Thanks again so much, Kinjal. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.